Inbal, thank you so much for taking the time to be on this show. Uh, really looking forward to our conversation. Really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to chat with you. Yeah. And, you know, we are um, at the beginning or early stages of this revolution with AI. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was one of the things that I was really excited to talk with you about. How did you get into AI? And then what did you see as the challenges with AI then and now? Yeah, so that that's, that is a great question. Um, I started working with AI when it was not even mentioned or called as AI, when AI was mm. very much a niche. Uh, mm -hmm. I started my career as an applied scientist, and I worked in the aerospace oh. industry. Um, and I basically developed Kalman filters for a living for navigation systems for different uh, vehicles. And the art was the art of tuning the Kalman filter. So how you fuse all these sensors, what is the weights that you need to put on your Kalman filter, what are these models, to eventually mm -hmm. get a clean signal to tell you where they are. It was even just the beginning of GPS being more commoditized. And then I've also done my... Uh, master thesis on um, developing multi-input, multi-output controllers. And I was using what was at that time called genetic algorithms, so a right-of-front approach to tune that. So I started really digging into the world of AI very mm -hmm. early on. And then throughout my career, I've encountered AI again and again, if it's in the work that I've done uh, in Amazon, in AWS, um, in Amazon specifically, I was part of the Alexa team. So mm -hmm. getting acknowledged to the world of natural language processing and what is conversational AI and how you use voice and voice prompt and so on and so forth. And then uh, recently in, in GitHub, developing Copilot and enhancing Copilot, continue evaluating after the world of democratizing AI and LLM. Yeah. Um, so if you ask me what are some of the big changes that I'm seeing in the industry when we're talking about AI, AI historically was at the hands of the expert. So you mm -hmm. needed to be an applied scientist, you needed to understand AI, you needed to be able to develop the model, and it was very niche. So we mm -hmm. developed AI for very specific use case, and you've optimized that solution for that use case. And now in the world of ChatGPT and democratizing AI, basically we're bringing AI to everyone. You don't have to be an AI expert to know how to leverage it. You just need to be able to focus on what is that application that you want to build yeah. and how is that application using the AI capabilities to develop that solution that you need for, for your product, for your customers, and what is the actual problem we're trying to solve. Yeah. So that's very fascinating because you've been at the forefront of a lot of these waves, you know, early stage with respect to GPS and navigation. And then you were doing robotics at Amazon yes. uh, for before even, you know, uh, robotics was uh, the kind of innovations that we see now. So how did you get into these domains that were really early stage and then contribute something to that domain to push the envelope forward? Yeah, that's a... Uh... I think it's part of my character. I, mm -hmm. I want to be, I, I'm a very good in the zero to one as a builder. I like mm -hmm. to be in areas that have a lot of ambiguity and that you need to go and figure out what is it that we're trying to solve and how to think about it. Um, a lot of that comes from my history as, a, as an aerospace engineer where I started mm -hmm. my career and that system engineering thinking. So the ability to look into a problem and dissect it to the different chunks and then figure out how to connect the dots and then how you use that to predict what will be needed. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot about what will the customer need in the future, how this product will look at the end of its development cycle and working backwards from that, 
So that's where my passion is. These are the type of the problems that I enjoy uh, solutioning if it's the combination of me being an applied scientist and a software developer and someone who is very familiar with hardware and then the product concept, all of that together mm-hmm. are the one that keeps on pushing me forward to dive into these new ventures, new world uh, of yeah. innovation. Yeah. Were there uh, some defining moments that built your philosophy around zero to one and uh, just building that ability to look around corners? Is this something that yeah. uh, that is inherent uh, that you're born with or can people learn this? Uh, I think I'm fortunate to have both. One, I, I think it's the engineering instinct that I have mm. developed throughout my career. Uh, and, and it comes from the fact that I was never a, uh, never f- afraid to try something new. So I was educated as an aerospace engineer, and I spent mm-hmm. the first five years of my career as an applied scientist in the aerospace industry, and then started taking additional responsibilities, also managing software and managing hardware, and then taking on the system engineering, which is basically the product management in the aerospace engineering. So continuing yeah. stretching myself putting more tools, more skills in my toolbox, and then doing the same going to the automotive industry and then going to Amazon and then Microsoft. Um, Someone asked me, what is the weirdest role that you ever played in your career? And I said, I work for customer service and I develop Mm -hmm. uh, solutions that help customers self-serve. And and people are looking into my history and my experience, like, why did you do that? Like, what pushed you there? Because I said, that's a tool that I didn't have in my toolbox. That's a skill that I was still missing as a, as a product leader, as an engineering uh-huh. leader. I was always developing product by finding a solution. But if I never had a chance to work so close to the customer and really understand the experience that they have, then I'm missing that customer obsession. So building that customer obsession by taking a role in, in customer service and customer support and customer success and figuring out how to help customers that puts another tool in your toolbox. So the the idea of getting used to feeling uncomfortable and when you feel too comfortable, look for something else because that means Mm -hmm. you already know what you're doing and you stop stretching yourself. That was for me was a guiding principle and that the ability to go all over the stack, solving different problems, thinking different about different products, different customers, different market, that enables me today to be much better in anticipating these corners, figuring out what are the next problems that will show up, um, saying, here's the mountain when no one else sees that. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's great. I think, you know, and the customer intimacy and that opportunity to understand where they are struggling with the technology or the challenges that they have, that really closes right. the loop as a builder to be able to have that perspective. Right. A hundred percent. And and that gave me so much understanding and so much appreciation that as a, as a product leaders, we often think about what is that next big innovation we can make and how can we make it include everything and, and think about every use case and every corner case that the customers are using. But then eventually when the customers are ending up using your product, one, you can never anticipate all the ways that they, they are using it. And the yeah. second thing is sometimes you're overcomplicating it for them. So really sitting in, in the customer's shoes and trying to figure out what is their use case going to be? How are they going to use your product? And trying to think about simplification. Customers don't like something that is too complex. It's hard to onboard or it's hard to use. It, even if it has all the bells and whistles, it's mm-hmm. not always the best product. Right. And so this detour that you had with customer service, and is that something that you sought out 
actively or did that just come to you and you <laughs> thought well you know i'm going to do this for some period of time but my real passion is building software and i'm going to figure out how to go back to that after this particular stint yeah i i think that the way i was thinking about my career someone asked me if you're looking back did you plan your career i i what i tend to say is i didn't plan my career but it didn't just happen so yeah. i took deliberate decisions throughout my career i i didn't think that uh i'll be the cpo of github it was not yeah. planned when i was in my 20s but the decisions that i took throughout my career the on the again it's identifying what are the skills that i want to add to my toolbox what are the things that i want to learn more that i want to be better at that i want yeah. to understand more and explore more these are the the criteria the criteria that i used in order to take decisions on the roles that i've played uh, did i think that i will be forever in customer service i didn't know at that time uh, yeah. every role that i'm doing i'm assuming that i'm going to do it until uh i don't feel that i add any more value at that point and i need to go and find a different adventure um, yeah. that was my uh philosophy when i built my career yeah and so you were doing software development in robotics at amazon mm -hmm. And then uh, you went to Microsoft and came back to Amazon as a general manager. So that was a, right. a jump. And yeah. so how did that jump happen and what enabled that jump? Yeah, so uh, I think, you know, there is the title of general manager uh, in AWS, which basically represents a multidisciplinary function that is managing both engineering and product. And it's the P&L responsibility. But if mm -hmm. I'm looking throughout my career, more or less since my first management role, I've been doing these multidisciplinary roles. When I was in the aerospace industry, I mm -hmm. built uh, navigation systems and I was responsible on both the software, the hardware, the sensors, the design of the systems, the product management. So I, I played the manage, uh, general manager role throughout my career. Um, yeah. and, and AWS was the first time that I had, right, the, the formal title that represents that multidisciplinary right. function. Uh, the big jump for me in, in going to AWS was enhancing my understanding in cloud and cloud development and how I moved from, if it was in the beginning of my career, developing software for a very small chip, uh, mm -hmm. or a CPU to really figuring out how to scale compute in the cloud and, and figure out what does that mean enabling businesses? to run on the cloud or going through a cloud transformation. At that shape, a different thinking and a different skill in my toolbox is, what does that mean development in that scale uh, and, and services? And you're no longer working with an end customer. You're now working with a business that is your right. end customers and they're building on top of, of your solution. Um, so, so I think that was that was an interesting learning for me because I feel like that my time in AWS enabled me to be now the CPO for GitHub mm -hmm. because I've had a chance to work with so many developers throughout my right. career from being an applied scientist and writing real-time software to after that doing web development and then NLP and Alexa and chat into then going to the cloud. So now I understand the, the variety of the developers that are using GitHub as the platform which yeah. makes me uh, think about what does that mean, a developer experience, and how we build this platform for all these developers that have very different needs. Right, right. Well, I mean, at GitHub, um, obviously, large community of software developers. But you know, as product people, when we think about uh, markets and segments of customers, we tend to see how to uh define those segments mm -hmm. so how does that apply to the developer community because i mean not all developers are the same right the developers are not the same and i the way i think about 
when we're talking about GitHub, we're talking about the developer platform. Yeah. And developers are not the same, but there is a lot of, there is a big overlap between a developer needs. Everyone needs a place to store their code. Everyone needs to do uh, code reviews and, and software development lifecycle. All developers would appreciate if they had a tool like Copilot that sits next to them and help them write code more effectively or shorten the, the boilerplate type of code mm -hmm. when they're writing. Uh, all developers want to focus on solving the problem that they are and not building infrastructure that that is used to develop the code. If, I'm a, if I develop an application or if I'm developing a navigation system, if I'm building a robot, I want to focus on that. I don't want to start figuring out all these tools that everyone yeah. is putting me and figuring out how to connect the dots. So in that manner, there is a lot of overlap between the developers. And then when you're looking into the community, you're looking on open source and you're looking on businesses, you start seeing much more common ground between an open source foundation and an enterprise you still need to have a space for all developers to collaborate. You want to see code sharing. You want to see thought process happening. You, all developers want to be productive. Mm -hmm. um, I've, I've read recently a research that GitHub has conducted that developers have less than 25% of their time actually writing code. Mm -hmm. The rest of the time they're spending in meetings, in collaboration, waiting for a build, waiting for hardware, waiting for something. So how, how are we making that 25% of their time writing code so much better. Yeah. So they're yeah. much more productive. Um, and that's that's the big driver for me when I'm thinking about GitHub is, okay, optimizing that 25%, and then what can we do to enhance better collaboration? So that's a 50%. What can we do so they don't need to wait so long for a build? That's another, that's yeah. going to the 75%. <laughs> um, can we do less meetings if we're using more async tools to get communication done. And I'm thinking about documentations or our projects. There's a lot of things that we can do to help accelerate uh, software development type cycle. Yeah. You mentioned earlier the art of uh, software development. Uh, so when we think about art, there is, an, um, there is a certain elegance to that uh, mm -hmm. output. And so, you know, when we think about writing code, it's only the end result of a lot of thinking that has gone into how do we design the system? How do we make sure that, you know, that design is elegant? And mm -hmm. I've heard this say by one of the brilliant engineers that I worked with. He said, it's not enough to just write code that works. It needs to be elegant in terms of the system design and, and all of that. And so the code being written is the end result of a lot of that thinking. And to what extent can that part of the software development or the engineer's uh, workload uh, be enabled with AI? I think that's a very good question. If, if, I'm, if I'm very honest, I think right now the existing power of AI is a lot about removing a lot of the repetitive work. Mm -hmm. We still want to see the software developers designing the system. Yeah. And by Copilot taking a lot of writing the repetitive code or the, the coding element itself, it gives the developer much more time for the art of developing code, which is the system right. design. Where AI in the future can be useful for system design is help being more of an educator. How does good look like? What is elegant? Mm -hmm. What is a more efficient code and a less efficient code? What is a more secure code versus a less secure code? Uh, mm -hmm. How can you learn from others? So how are we seeing kind of the AI becoming more of an educator and a helper? But right now we're still are in a phase where we need developers to think about the system design and the art of right. writing code. 
but definitely we'll see AI developing more and more towards helping thinking about system design. If it's learning from others, if it's showing you documentation, if it's giving you feedback on your system design and highlighting some areas of failure, maybe it can run some tests and it will identify that your system design is breaking in these corner cases or it doesn't cover that corner cases. So AI will continue to enhance, it will continue to grow, but the core of system design will be at the hands of the developers. Yeah. Well, what's fascinating about GitHub is uh, you've got a group of engineering teams that are users themselves. Right. And, um, you know, typically what you see in many industries or many companies is engineering is removed from the customer. There are, you know, degrees of uh, uh, that removal uh, just because they cannot necessarily relate to the customer and the mm -hmm. use case, whereas that's not the case with GitHub. So do you feel that um, you've got engineering who's much smarter, much more aware about the needs of the users than perhaps product people are in, in GitHub? Because that's the dynamic that you see, which is reverse in many companies. I, GitHub is unique <clears throat> in that manner that we're building, when we're building GitHub, we're not just building it for developers, we're building it for software development lifecycle. So our, our population that are using GitHub are bigger than just the software developers. We yeah. are fortunate that we have internally to GitHub our customers. So when the product yeah. is coming with a concept, one, most of the time it's, it's done as a joint venture between engineering and product. And the second thing is that you have your tester within home to go and test whatever your thinking is. So you have yeah. a, a sounding board, you have a, a customer advisory board that basically is building yeah. eventually the, the concept that you have built. So, so I think that's one element. The, the second element of that is that when we're thinking about the developers, even our developers are only representing a segment of the developers. They're not covering all the developers. So we have a representation, a big representation, but by far we're not covering all the, if we're talking about aerospace or automotive or fintech yeah. industry and so on and so forth. So this is where the product is bringing an additional perspective representing the rest of the customers that are not necessarily just our developers. But definitely we're in a unique place that we have that amazing synergy between having our engineers and our product leaders all coming together to solve a problem that everyone is passionate about because that's their yeah. tool that they use. And in GitHub, we believe in uh, what we call eating our own dog food, meaning mm -hmm. GitHub is running on GitHub. So we have a firsthand experience in GitHub, which makes the company much more customer obsessed because we experience firsthand where we're failing when we're designing for developers and what does success look like. Yeah. I've heard you talk about the metrics that GitHub enhances. And mm -hmm. one of those metrics that you've mentioned is developer fulfillment. Mm -hmm. And so how do you measure that? How do you measure fulfillment? Yeah, that's an excellent question. <laughs> um, it's really hard to measure developer fulfillment. For me, developer fulfillment, you know, there are input goals and output goals. For me, mm -hmm. developer fulfillment is an output goal. The way we, when we're talking to developers and we've done a developer experience research recently, what developers said, they feel fulfilled when they have an effective collaboration, when they feel that they're more productive, when they're getting recognitions from their leadership on the work that they have done, and mm -hmm. they get acknowledgement for the decisions that they are taking. And when we're looking into how do we measure fulfillment is what, what are these set of metrics that we can measure as an input that will eventually result in a developer happiness. 
So we are focusing on making developers much more productive. If it's with Copilot or if it's with projects and issues, with actions, everything that we can across the develop software development lifecycle, making developers more productive. The second thing, we know that GitHub today is the largest platform in the world to lead collaboration between developers. We have 100 million right. users, more than 100 million users on, on the one platform that is GitHub. And then the third one is because you're running everything on GitHub, you can measure the developer mm -hmm. productivity. You can see the collaboration. You can see the decisions. You can see the thought process. So developer will get much more appreciation from their leadership on the thought process because it's all in one system. And when you aggregate all these metrics together, you're getting that eventually developer fulfillment and their mm. enjoyment. And, and, and a lot of that, that developers want to figure out that they focus on the things that matter. Mm. So if we're enabling to focus on the things that matter to them, the things that drive impact and less on the infrastructure that they run their code or less on writing code, maybe that is repetitive, then automatically we're making them more productive. Hence, we're making them more happy. I think there is an aspect of, you know, like you said, the 25% of time that a developer spends writing code and how do we make that productive? But you really want software developers, engineers thinking about what to build and the systems and making sure we don't over-engineer them so that uh, we don't fall into the situation where we are building the wrong thing fast exactly. just because we are productive. Exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah. It's, not, it's not about the speed. We call it time to value. Hmm. And time to value is what is that time that you need to cook your idea so it's good yeah. enough. So we are thinking about all these use cases and nuances and how fast can you experiment with that and learn from your experience. Right? We have a, one of our leadership is sheep to learn. We believe in putting things mm. out there that are not necessarily 100% ready, but you start getting that feedback. So can we enhance that as a developer productivity because you shorten the feedback cycle? When you're thinking yeah. about developer productivity, there are so many things that are in that statement and everyone can interpret the developer right. productivity. But I think developer productivity for me, it's much more than time. Time is one aspect of it. And for me, when I'm looking into time, it's time to value. It's how long does it take you from the moment you have an idea to the moment that you have delivered the value that you wanted to deliver for your customer? And, yeah. and that is a more important metrics when we're looking into developer productivity than, than time or speed. Yeah. Um, you mentioned, you talked about fulfillment and the aspects that create that fulfillment for developers. Mm -hmm. As you look at the product management side of the house and product management, is there a corresponding way to think about product manager fulfillment? And is that how you're looking at the PM organization that you lead? PMs want to solve impactful problems. They, they want to make sure that they're delivering impact when they're thinking mm -hmm. about a product, when they're thinking about a solution for mm -hmm. customers, they want to make sure that they have captured that entire space of the existing problem, but also the future problem that's where product management magic is happening. Hmm. You, they are venturing into these unknown area. They're trying to figure out what is the next thing they need to go and innovate on behalf of the customer. So product manager wears so many hats. They need to think like a developer. They need to think like a customer. They need to think like um, a project management. They need to think like a CTO that is taking mm -hmm. a decision. They need to think like a CIO that is maybe taking a buying decision or like a CISO that is looking into a platform um, for security. Uh, so that's the uniqueness about a product leader. They have to represent 
all the segments of customers that the problem right. they're trying to solve exists. And then they need to have that creative mindset and the ability to look around corners, the ability to look on the, what is the end result that they're trying to achieve. And I think that is the biggest uh, satisfaction for a product manager when they are able to capture that space, when they're able to make it something that eventually will lead to a product and that product will deliver value to the customers and they'll see the customer adoption. They will hear the customer reviews. They will see that enhancement and meeting the goals that they have set up for right. themselves and sometimes exceeded. That's, that's the biggest fulfillment for a product leader. Yeah, that's great. I've heard you say in Bill that you want it to be your own worst customer. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? So I always try to think, what is the customer that will struggle the most using our product? And okay. where will they struggle? And trying to predict that when I'm thinking about a product, when my team is thinking about a product, is always having that customer chair in the room when we're having a product discussion or a product design. What will that customer that maybe don't understand anything in AI and we put in mm -hmm. front of them a code completion or our copilot, how will they feel? Will they know how to use it? Will they know to understand the value that is coming from that? What are these going to be the set of questions that a customer will ask us? Will a customer, will that customer will be willing to pay for mm -hmm. that solution? If they were in the room with us taking a decision when we're doing a feature, when we're doing a capability, when we're thinking about a new product, will that customer, our worst customer, will they sit in the room and say, yeah, I understand the value of what you guys are doing. I see how I can use it. I see where is all the documentation that I need to find in order to onboard to your product. And I'm willing to take my checkbook out and pay for, for what you guys yeah. are building. So that's for me, that's the worst customer is that the customer that we need to figure out how to position the value in a way that they really understand it. And maybe the customer that will struggle the most to use our product, how we make our product usable for that customer. Yeah. So when product managers are learning about customers, learning from customers, um, how do you advise uh, how much time they spend with um, the best customer and the worst customer? They, they should spend time with all their customers, the best customers, the worst customers, the small customers, the big customer, they're the, the not even yet customer, the, yeah. the projected customers. Yeah. You have to understand who are these people, who are these customers, who are these organizations that you're building your product from? And it doesn't matter if it's a developer platform or it's a device that sits in your home that speaks to you and answers questions, mm -hmm. or it's a, a robot that goes in the street and delivers packages. Or it's a chatbot when a customer is coming to talk to and they're asking questions about, I'm struggling to install my word, what should I do right now? Mm -hmm. You have to understand your customers. The, the key to being a great product leader is having a strong customer obsession and understand your customers. Now, where is the pitfall that is happening? You don't solve for what your customer wants. You solve for what your customer needs. Because when mm -hmm. you talk to customers, they will come to you with a list of right. thoughts and ideas and feedback. All is great. You take it. You, you learn from it. You try to understand what is that customer actually need when they're asking for what they want and a yeah. great product leaders know how to distill all this information into understanding what the customer need and it's not just what they need right now it's what will they need in the future yeah yeah excellent um you talked about leadership principles 
and you know if i rewind uh, the time on your career a little bit at amazon very famous for the leadership principles customer obsession working backwards at during your time at amazon was there a, an incident or an instance when uh, you felt that this was an opportunity to apply those leadership principles tell us a story or two about that um that's a good question let me think i, I the when we have built the amazon delivery robot as you you're fully aware it's full of innovation it's a new right. technology it's it's an amazing uh set of engineers and product leaders coming together trying to solve mm-hmm. a problem that is still very new to the market a lot of ambiguity what i've seen that the teams have a tendency to jump into that technology mm. and figuring out okay how are we integrating these sensors how are we making sure that the robot is is driving exactly in a straight line it's not necessarily mm. going left and right and and the biggest question that I asked my team is like okay so we took the robot from point A to point B how is that robot now delivering a package what is that customer interaction that they have with the person that's supposed to come to the robot and pick up their package and the team stopped for a moment and said we didn't think about it hmm. and and I said you know before we know how to drive the robot from point A to point B maybe we should work backwards from the end case the end case is we want to deliver a package for a customer how is that interaction look like mm-hmm. and then work how to bring the robot back from point b to point a from their initial delivery location to where they're supposed to deliver the the package how is that interaction look like is it a voice interaction do we expect them to have an app also think about that fleet of robots that are walking the streets what happens if a robot get lost or mm-hmm. if a kid is approaching the robot and they are like what is that toy and i want to <laughs> touch it and i want to hug it and i want to play with it how is that interaction look like? So really starting to figure out with what is the end goal? We're, deli- we're building yeah. a delivery robot that the purpose of that delivery robot is delivering packages. So that means a lot of human interaction throughout the lifespan of that robot that if you build yeah. a robot for a factory that works the floor, it's not the same interaction. So figuring out that human aspect, and, and that's the customer obsession that yeah. uh, that is on the Amazon leadership principles. And, and to be honest, it's right now, a strong leadership principles across the industry. You see that in Microsoft, you see that in, mm-hmm. in GitHub. Customer obsession is becoming a de facto for when you're thinking about a new innovation. Who is your customer? How you're going to interact with it in this case? Or who are your set of customers that you're building your product for and how you expect them to use it? So so yeah. that was for me a big uh, customer obsession moment. And I've done that role immediately after doing my role in, in customer service. So I was mm. very much in the cons- in the customer mindset right. because I just finished my tenure in customer service <laughs> and I, I don't want to pick up a phone call and talk to a customer that says, I, I found your robot in my backyard. <laughs> what do I do with it right now? Yeah, yeah, that's great. Uh, so, you know, this aspect about customer obsession and working backwards, do you see companies struggling with this? Uh, in terms of adopting that working backwards approach. I mean, at at the end of the day, it all sounds very common sense, yet very hard to do. Mm -hmm. And so why is that? There is that dichotomy where something makes so much sense, but is very much hard to do. I think it goes to the origin of innovation. When, Mm. When you're thinking about someone developing a great idea, they're thinking... In the back of their head, they're thinking about someone is going to use it and here's how they're going to use it. But it's not always that crisp that yeah. 
they have, I'm working backwards from a customer because I have a great idea and it's a great solution. It's a great technical solution that I can go implement or it's a great product or it's a great book that I'm writing and, and someone is going to read it. So in the back of your hand, you're always working backwards from a customer because mm -hmm. if you're doing something like that, you're not necessarily solving a problem for yourself. You're trying to solve a problem at scale. So you're expecting to have a customer, a user, a person or someone using your, your product. I think the struggle is to make it crisp and clear. Like mm. what, what is that point in time that you're taking your idea from a great innovation to a usability element of that? And, and this is where that bridge is becoming hard because you're so busy in that innovation that you're driving, that amazing idea that you have and developing and bringing it to life. And then you finish developing it and then, oh, but the customer that I built it and that I had in the back of my mind is not exactly the customer that I have right now. So how mm -hmm. am I building the bridge between what I built to the customers that want to use my product? That's where the working backwards is such a strong tool mm -hmm. because it forces you to stop when you have a great idea and ask yourself before you start building, before you start writing a line of code, before you start developing anything, what, who is my customer? What am I solving for? What is the problem that I'm trying to solve? And then focus on that amazing innovation that you have. So it's not that the customer working backwards is coming before the innovation. The idea for innovation is the first. But yeah. before you pursue just with the innovation track, that's the moment you need to stop and ask yourself, who is my customer? Who is my user? Who am yeah. I doing it for? And that requires being out in the field, meeting, talking with people that you hope to solve the problem for. You cannot short circuit that uh process no and, and that's that's the era of product management if we think yeah. about our job as product leaders is really doing that working backwards from the customers not all yeah. the innovation is coming from a product team right not all the innovation is coming from the engineering team not all the innovation is coming from technical people at all yeah innovation yeah. is happening everywhere but the role of product management is taking innovation and making it real yeah Excellent. Throughout your career, as you made the leap into leadership and management, how did that happen and how did you become comfortable with that? Hmm. Uh, I would say it happened by accident. <laughs> okay. Um, I was hired to develop a navigation system uh, for a company uh, for helicopters. And <clears throat> at that time, I was, I, I think, if I remember correctly, my manager that was leading the team has left and I was asked as the most senior person on the team to jump into a management role. And I was not sure that this is what I want to do because I really enjoy mm -hmm. being an applied scientist at the forefront, innovating. Um, but there was a need and I was asked mm -hmm. and I, I tend to take chances on things that I don't feel comfortable doing. So I said yes. And that was my, my first management role. Um, and, and I started figuring out, oh, being a manager is not exactly being an applied scientist. You need to develop so many tools and so many skills in your in your toolbox that no one really teaches you. Yeah. It's like being a parent. You know, there is no handbook that tells yeah. you, here's how you're becoming a great leader. You learn a lot by by making mistakes and and, and you learn by experimenting and you learn by developing these relationships. And how to empower people and when to delegate and what these audit mechanisms look like and what are the things you need to do yourself? What are the things that you expect your teams to deliver on? So for me, that was the first management experience. And when I started doing that, I didn't think I'm going to like it. 
I was I was a very hands-on person. I enjoyed being mm. an engineer. It was my core. I was an engineer, I, likely since I was a kid. But suddenly I figure out that being a leader is being engineer plus plus because now mm. it's not the impact that you're delivering. You can deliver much bigger impact because you're also enabling other people to deliver impact. And basically, instead of doing a function, now you're doing a product. And then instead of doing a product, now you're doing a set of products. And then you're, mm. now you're you're managing such a large portfolio and you're empowering much more people to go and, and do that. So the impact is much bigger if you do it right. And that's, that's the core of great leadership is how are you empowering your teams mm. to deliver great impact? And, and that's what brought me into a, a leadership position. And that's why I've, I've never looked back. Yeah, excellent. One of the things that I'm picking up from our conversation is you've continuously put yourself in situations that stretch you and yes. continuously looking for those challenging opportunities, whether that's spending time in customer service or, um, you know, taking on this leadership role that you said happened by accident. But all these have been ways that you've stretched yourself. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's a, a great uh, theme to come out of this conversation. Yeah, I, I think if someone would ask me what's <clears throat> the best advice that you can give someone who's starting your career is don't afraid mm -hmm. to take risks because mm -hmm. taking risks is likely the smartest thing that you can do. Some of them will be great learning experience. Some of them will be not so much, but it's still a great learning experience because sometimes you succeed, sometimes you fail, sometimes you move forward, sometimes you take a step back. But overall... Yeah you keep on growing and you keep on enhancing and you keep on having, if we talked about Amazon leadership principles, your learn and be curious is never put on hold because you keep on yeah. adding more things that you know how to do. You keep on adding all these great learnings and that's who we are as humanity, right? We want to continue to yeah. grow. We want to continue to learn. That's the source of innovation. That's why we continue innovating in the fast pace that we are. And, and for me, that was, uh, a life motto. I, I want to continue learn. I want to continue grow. I want to continue enhancing my skills. And I want to be able at, at a point, any point in my career, do the same for others. And how can I help mm. others continue to learn and, and grow? And I've been doing mentor mentorship for a lot of female in tech because yeah. that's something that I've experienced when, when I went to uh, my bachelor degree, we were six women in my class because it's an aerospace. It's not, it's not common to find female leadership. And I yeah. took it on a goal to myself to encourage other female leaders to continue stretching themselves, continue taking chances and taking risks and continue enhancing what they know. Sometimes it's in a niche and sometimes it's in a leadership position and sometimes it's outside their comfort zone completely. Yeah. So when you came back to Amazon uh, as a general manager, and now you've been at GitHub for a year as a chief product officer, when you come into these leadership roles, how do you evaluate or assess the landscape of the organization and then create your own sort of mental model of um, areas for you to focus on and define your mission for the, for the organization? I think the biggest thing that I've done when I joined GitHub as well as AWS and any other role is, is listen. You talk to your team, you talk to your customers, you talk to your partners, what do they expect? Um, I spent a lot of time talking to as many people that I could mm -hmm. to really understand what is the greatness that we have? What is that GitHub brand, that amazing developer platform that we have put out there? What does our customers think about it? What is the community think about it? What is the open source community think about it? And, and trying to map 
what is the areas that are working amazingly and I shouldn't touch. I, do, I don't need mm -hmm. to touch it. It works. Don't break it. And what are these areas of opportunities that we have that will help me shape the vision for the product for GitHub? Mm -hmm. And there were lots of learnings coming from that. Um, if it's the, the, the idea that product leadership in, in GitHub is pretty new. It's, it's a function that have established in, in GitHub after the acquisition by Microsoft. Mm -hmm. Before that, it was, it was done, but it was mm -hmm. not defined as a function that was leading change for the company. And ever since the acquisition, that function has been up and running. So let's say something like four years that GitHub yeah. has a solid product team. But that also means that the team is pretty new and the, the concept and the practices of product leadership and product management is new to the company. So how do mm -hmm. you help shape that vision for what does that mean being a product team, a product leader? What is the expectation from a product leader? How is a great product leader look like? What are some areas of opportunity? And then the second part is what is the product that is GitHub? Mm -hmm. What is our brand? What are some of the things we need to do in order to continue growing in the same rate that we have been growing, maybe even accelerating? And how do we anticipate the future of the needs from our customers? And that's where I spend most of my time is really asking these questions and trying to get yeah. as much as many feedback points that I can. Wonderful. Uh, Inbal, who have been the people uh, that you've looked up to? that have shaped your way of thinking about products or leadership? Who have you been most influenced by? I, I, there are two, two people that jump into mind. Uh, the first one is, I would say, Jeff Bezos. I mm. really appreciate how Jeff, he, he, still, he was still, when he was the CEO of, of um, Amazon, he was still the, the product leader for the company. What mm -hmm. I really appreciate about Jeff Bezos, he was never afraid of experimenting, even mm -hmm. if it's not successful, and taking risks and, and shaping the future. He was not afraid of jumping into a venture of unknown and mm -hmm. innovating on behalf of the customers. And the second, um, which came before Jeff Bezos, he was my first manager in, in the aerospace industry when I was still applied scientist, uh, and he was leading our system engineering function. And he's the one that taught me to look on the on the big picture, how mm. everything is coming together and really identifying these corners or how to anticipate the mountains that are not mm. there. And, and these two together, the, the, the learn to be brave and don't shy away from experimentation, even if some of them will result in failing is the failing forward and uh, learn how to anticipate the big picture and look around corners. These are the two people that have shaped a lot my um, my, my product perspective. Very nice. Um, we are coming to the rapid fire uh, section of our conversation here. Um, oh. <laughs> is, there a, is there a book that uh, you, you've recommended a lot uh, that you think everyone should read this book? Well, there is a recent book that I uh, finished reading not a long time ago. It's written by Dahlia Feldheim. It calls Dare to Lead Like a Girl. Okay. And what I liked about that girl is a different concept of how to embrace female traits for leadership and how to empower more women to become a leader and speak mm -hmm. their truth. Because often we find women trying to assimilate and that book is encouraging. Don't try to assimilate, lean in, mm -hmm. be who you are and find a way to influence from the point of who you are and your traits to, to become a better leader. And that's, that's a book that I recommend to everyone. It's not just for female, it's really also mm -hmm. uh, for the entire uh, leadership learn understand who are your employees what are they thinking about 
so that's that's a book that i definitely recommend beautiful um if you had to put a slogan on a t-shirt uh, what would that be hmm. i'll quote my uh my manager in aws uh she's always right um you know as as someone who has spent her career throughout the stack and have built Mm. different type of product that engineering instincts that gut instincts that product instincts is very strong with me Mm. so one of the leadership principles that was always tied to me is a write a lot Mm. Um, it's you know it's it's a blessing and a curse but um but that's something that i'm very proud that i have these instincts to identify um all the things that we can do better or anticipate some of the challenges that are coming. Although if you ask your, my husband, he will say she's never right. So maybe <laughs> that's the backside of my t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then, you know, what do you do in Bull just to, you know, decompress and take a step back? Are there rituals or routines that you follow for yourself personally uh, that have helped you a lot? Well, I'm I'm a hidden artist. I would say that's something I will oh. do full time, hopefully when I retire one day. But I like to paint. And right now oh. I paint in watercolor and I paint in gouache. And for me, that's a big decompression. If I can find even 20, 30 minutes in a day at the end of the day, just clear my head. And that's a yeah. lot of the, when the problem solving is happening, because at that time you don't focus on anything besides a paint on a paper and, yeah. and creating something more creative. I would say that's my creative outlet. Uh, because I'm not an engineer anymore, <laughs> and um, and that's that's my my happy time. And the other part is just hanging with my kids and having yeah. a conversation on how was their day and school, and really focusing on soaking as much as I can from from that experience, uh, staying with my kids as much as I can. Yeah, beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Inbal. I've really appreciated you taking the time out of your very busy schedule to have this conversation beyond this show. And you've really shared so much rich, insightful aspects of your career uh, that, uh, you know, this, there are lots of takeaways there. So really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And I, I hope it will be helpful for other product leaders, other leaders that are developing their career and, and learning from my, my experience and my stories. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you.